dismissed to Children's Church. And if you rest of us, we'll open our Bibles this morning to the book of Mark. And Mark chapter 8, I want to uh, commend those of you who helped out this past weekend. Um, we, uh, our verse says, do not be slothful in zeal. And uh, this week we got the parsonage roof ripped off and put on before the rain. And I want to thank everybody who helped out with that. We had like 20 people out there on Friday night uh, working on that project. Got it all covered up before the rain came yesterday. So thank you for those who have served in that capacity. Thank you also to those of you who are helping with the Strawberry Festival. As we think about soccer camp in a couple weeks, we rejoice in the opportunity we have to uh, serve our community. Well, we turn to Mark chapter 8. And this morning, as we look at Mark chapter 8, our title of the sermon this morning is Eyesight and Insight. Eyesight and Insight. And to, to set this up, the context of the passage is Jesus has just given eyesight to a blind man. There was this guy who couldn't see anything. Jesus healed him, and he healed him partially. And then Jesus spit, made mud, put it on this guy's eyes, and then he could see clearly. And we saw that last week, and we saw how that miracle is more than just a miracle to demonstrate God's power to us. That, that is, it is a living parable. It was a parable that taught us this. It helps us to see things clearly as we get our eyes into focus, and it helps us to understand that Jesus gives this blind man sight. He restores his vision instantly and sharpens it progressively. And that is a truth that we saw in our own lives, that God gives us eyesight. When we are born again, we, are, are, we go from darkness to light. We go from being blind to seeing. But then God uses the rest of our lives as believers to grow us and change us, continually sharpening our vision. And we think of this idea of sharpening the vision I had up there just a moment ago. Well, I'll go back to it, the uh, eye chart. All right, how many of you right now are trying to find the, small, the, the lowest line you can read? Can anybody in the back read the bottom line? All right, a few of you have good eyesight. Can some in the front row hardly see any of it? All right, this week I had to go back to the eye doctor, and uh, guess what? I have to get some different glasses because I think they're still on the idea. They think I'm getting older. And so we've got to get this changes done. And, and, but, we, but last week we saw that. We introduced this idea last week of God opens our eyes and then sharpens our vision with the contrast between what happens in our natural life in our natural life, the older we get, the poorer our eyesight becomes. And yet spiritually, the older we get, the more time we spend as followers of Jesus, the sharper our spiritual eyesight, eyesight should be getting. And so that is the context, and that's what Jesus is seeking to teach us in this passage. And so this morning, we're going to look at verses 27 through chapter 9, verse 1. And so let's read this together. Follow along as I read this. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, 
For you are not set in your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here today who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And in that passage, we're going to begin seeing that Jesus is giving his disciples insight. He has given this blind man eyesight, and now Jesus is seeking to give his disciples insight. Insight to who he is, insight also into what's going to happen to him, but then also insight about what it means to follow him. And so Jesus begins this passage by asking his disciples a question. He, he, takes them, he asks them, who do people say that I am? Jesus is seeking to gauge their understanding of what's going on. Who do people say that I am? And they say to him, some say you're John the Baptist, because John the Baptist has been beheaded. We saw earlier in the book of Mark that Herod actually thought Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. And it's because John's and Jesus' message so correspond, it's about the kingdom of God, repent and believe, that those messages paralleled. Some people thought he was John the Baptist. Others thought that he was like Elijah. In the Old Testament, Elijah performed incredible miracles. And they're seeing these miracles that Jesus is performing and saying, well, well maybe it's, it's not John the Baptist, but the miracles, maybe he's Elijah. And others are saying he's one of the prophets. Uh, but among these ideas, everybody realized this guy is somebody special. A little bit of confusion, not a lot of clarity about who he is. And so Jesus then turns and he asks the disciples and he says to them, and who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Because they've been with Jesus this whole time. They've watched him perform miracles. They've seen him raise the dead. They've seen him restore eyesight. They've listened to his teaching. They've been inundated with all of this. They say to Jesus, says to his disciples, watch your conclusion. And Peter speaks up. And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. And what we see here is that Peter sees that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Christ means Messiah. Messiah is the Old Testament word for Christ. And it means that Jesus is the anointed one. He is the one to whom all the Old Testament has been pointing. The whole Old Testament, everything written up to this point in the Bible has been pointing us to Jesus. That he is the seed of the woman who God talked about in the Garden of Eden. He is the one who promised, who he promised to Abraham would bless all the nations of the world through him. To David, he's the one who he promised would sit on an eternal throne. This is Jesus. This is this anointed one, the Christ. He is the one who, Jeremiah says, executes justice and righteousness. He is a God who saves Judah and causes Israel to dwell securely. These people who are being oppressed by the Romans, they can dwell securely. 
He is the one that we read about from Isaiah around Christmas time. He is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This is Jesus. He is this Messiah. He is the one who has come. And that Peter makes that incredible confession. And as we look at Peter's confession, and before we see what Jesus says next, we can't stop here without asking the question of us today, who do you say that Jesus is? You see, a lot of times it's easy to say Jesus was well, a great teacher, a great philosopher. He was a, a religious leader, all of those things. But listen, the Bible clearly describes to us that Jesus is the Messiah that he's God in the flesh, that he is the eternal God who took on flesh, lived among us for 33 years, dies on the cross, rose from the dead so that we could have new life, so that we could be born again. And so the question that confronts us is who do we say that Jesus is? Do we say that he is the Lord and Savior? Or maybe to make it a little more personal, is he your Lord and Savior? Are you trusting Jesus as your Savior? I, I know, I'm not asking, have you prayed a prayer in the past? I'm asking you today, are you trusting Jesus is, as your Savior? Are you trusting him as the Lord, as the King of your life? And I would encourage you, if that's not where he is today in your life, I encourage you to turn, to repent, to trust him, and to see him in a fresh way and to surrender your life to him. There's nothing that could be better. And so the question to Peter was, who do you say that I am? Peter answers him, you are the Messiah. Well, back to our text in verse 30. Jesus, Peter makes this astounding statement. And in verse 30, he says, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about it. Okay, now, the book of Matthew tells us that, that the Father opened Peter's eyes to understand this. And now you're one of the disciples, and let's suppose you've been following him for all this time, and you're hearing that, that he, you think he's the Messiah, and now Peter has just declared that, and Jesus says, you're right. What do you want to go do? No, tell everybody. I mean, you got some great news. This Jesus, this guy we've been following all these years, we're right. He's worthy of following. He's the best teacher there is. We want to go tell everybody. And Jesus says, no, 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 don't tell anybody. And we would ask the question, why not? Why doesn't Jesus want them to tell anybody? And really, we would conclude probably two primary reasons. The first reason would be that the crowds who are following Jesus are already massive. I mean, there are massive crowds. He fed, in our passage in the last couple of weeks, he fed 4,000 people at one time. 4,000 people who listened to him for three days without eating. Okay? I mean, he's popular. A few days before, a little time before that, he fed 5,000 people. Earlier in Mark, we're told that Jesus says to his disciples as he goes out to teach, hey, get a boat ready for me, because the crowds were so big, they were afraid Jesus was going to get crushed. I mean, his fame is already incredible. And so he's, he, he, he recognizes that if word gets out that I'm the Messiah, the crowds are just going to grow, and it's even possible that these people would want to force him to become their king. So Jesus is like, nope, not time yet. It's not time yet. Because not only are the crowds going to get big, but also they don't know enough about Jesus yet. There's coming a time where Jesus is going to say to them, hey, go tell everybody. Go tell the whole world. Go and make disciples of all nations. He's going to tell them that, but it's not yet. It's not yet because they don't know enough about Jesus yet. They don't know all the implications of what it means to be the Messiah. 
And so what does Jesus do? Well, he continues to teach them. In verse 31, let's look on. It says this in verse 31. It says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And so, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Jesus then next, okay, you're right, I'm the Messiah. Let me tell you a little more about what it means to be the Messiah. What it means is that I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected by all the religious leaders. I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. Now, imagine being one of the disciples. You're like, oh, I get it. This makes complete sense. Right? I mean, of course you have to die. But that's not where they are, because look what Peter's response. And Peter is the spokesman. He's the one who always chimes in. And look what it says in verse 32. It says, and he said this plainly, so there's no question what Jesus meant. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Which is an interesting idea, isn't it? We think, okay, Peter, rebuking Jesus, the one you just called the Messiah, probably not a good idea, right? I mean, now, we get this at some level because, as we said in the book of Matthew, we're told that it's the Father who had revealed this to Peter. And Peter's like, I've got this divine insight. I've got this divine insight from God, and this divine insight says you're the Messiah, and now I've got this extra knowledge. So there's no way what you're saying now can be right because how can the Messiah die? How can the Messiah suffer? That doesn't fit. That's not how it's supposed to work. And that's Peter's idea on this. And what's going on, though, is Peter's missing some Old Testament teaching. He misses some ideas that Jesus that had been told to us about the Messiah in the Old Testament. And we see that in the book of Isaiah. So turn there with me. I want to see what it is that they missed. This idea that Peter's going to say to Jesus, you can't die. You can't suffer. I'm not going to let that happen. That Jesus is teaching them. And he's teaching them that he is indeed a suffering servant. And so turn with me to Isaiah 53. If you're using a pew Bible, this is on page 614. If you don't have a Bible, there's one close to you, page 614. And we'll begin in verse 4. And this is Jesus sharpening the disciples' understanding of the Messiah with Old Testament truths and helping them to get a bigger understanding. And so it says in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we've all turned to our own way, every one of us. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of many people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit found in his mouth. 
yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall, procl- he shall prolong his days. And, and, he, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. As we see this passage in Isaiah, it teaches us that the Messiah is going to be a victorious conqueror, but also a suffering servant. And yet Peter draws Jesus aside because Peter has no category for a suffering servant. I mean, what, what do we see in the context of our passage? What does this mean? Peter has eyesight. His eyes are open to who Jesus is. He's the Messiah, but he needs additional insight. And so Jesus is giving him this insight as Jesus wants to continue to teach us. And as we see this back in Mark chapter 8, I can't help but to think how we often can be very much like Peter. That we're like, you're like, wait a minute, Steve, I would never rebuke Jesus. I would never tell God he's wrong. And I would, I would probably agree with you that probably face-to-face you wouldn't say that, maybe. Um, but think about how often we try to reimagine who Jesus is or to reimagine who God is, that, that we're tempted to do the same things. Oftentimes when we read our Bibles and we're reading our Bibles, things that we don't understand or maybe things in our Bible that we don't actually like, that we hear, things, we hear people say things like, well, well my God wouldn't do that. That's not what God, how could God, there's no way God could mean what he says here. That just does not fit my understanding. And so what we want to do, we want to kind of put our arm around the Bible and say, okay, I'm over here. Let me tell you something. This is not how this works, all right? We live in 2019, you're off base. This is not what this really means, right? And we're like, that doesn't sound right, does it? I'm convinced we often do it, that we often do this, that we're confident that we know what this book should say. And so what happens is we end up standing in judgment over the Bible, and we're the one who is actually the authority. I know what the Bible should say. I know what it should be like. If Jesus is really who he says he is, this is how he should treat people. This is how he should act. And we see that all over our culture, and people have all these ideas about what Jesus should be like because they're standing over over the Bible and saying, this is what God's like. But when we understand that God's word is inspired, it's infallible, this is the word of God, that we don't get to stand over and then judge the Bible, that we sit underneath the Bible and let it interpret and judge us. That it's a matter of position. Where do I stand in relation to God and his word? Do I set myself up as the authority over it? And when I disagree with it, we could be like Thomas Jefferson who just he literally he would carve out parts of the Bible he didn't like. He would cut it out. And some of you should say, well, I would never do that. I would say, so I ask the question, what do you do when you come to a passage that confronts you? Do you submit yourself to it? You say, Lord, you tell me, says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. And you say, well, he didn't know my wife. I'm not saying that. I've got a great wife. But we say, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. Or we'd say things like, forgive one another as God and Christ has forgiven you. And we read that and we're like, that's a great statement. But it doesn't apply to me when it comes to this family member that's wronged me. I'm not forgiving them. After what they've done to me, 
and God talks about our do not lie. Pretty straightforward. Well, yeah, but if I don't lie, there's, I'm probably not going to get this promotion or I'm probably not going to get as big a tax break if I lie. And so, so we practically get the scissors out, clip, clip, cut, cut, paste, paste, and then our Bible has these holes in it and we're like, okay, that's a Bible I can follow. Rather than realize the Word of God stands over us. And we don't want to be like Peter. Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. Well, how does Jesus respond to this? Look in verse 33 back in Mark 8. How does Jesus respond? As Jesus is telling them, I am the suffering servant. I am the Messiah who's going to do all these grand things, but I'm also going to suffer. And Peter says, nuh-uh. What does Jesus say? In verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Okay, same word. Peter rebuked Jesus. Jesus turns and rebukes, Jesus turns and rebukes Peter. And, and it's a strong warning saying, you're wrong. And he says, seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And as Jesus confronts confronts Peter with this, he says to him, Get behind me, Satan. And we're like, wait a minute. Didn't he just confess that Jesus is the Messiah and was told that's right? Isn't he on God's side? What's this Satan thing all about? Well, the Satan thing is all about that what Peter is saying is exactly what Jesus wants to hear, what he wants Jesus to hear. And what he wants Jesus to hear is, hey, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to die. Remember back in when Jesus was being tempted by Satan after Jesus had fasted for 40 days? That, 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 that it, it, Satan told him, hey, turn that rock into bread. And Jesus says, nope, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from God. He says, I'm not doing it. And then he takes him up this high pinnacle and he shows him all these kingdoms of the world. And Satan says to Jesus, hey, if you will bow down to me, if you will bow down to me, I'll give you all of this. And we're thinking, well, what right does he have to give that stuff away? Well, we read in Scripture that Satan is called the God of this age. And what the temptation is saying, hey, Jesus, listen, one day you're going to have all this. But the way God has written it out, it's going to be a really hard way because you've got to go through the cross. You've got to die, and you've got to suffer and all that. I've got a better way. I've got a shortcut. Bow down to me, and it's all yours now. You don't have to go to the cross. And when, Peter, when Jesus hears Peter say to him, he says, this isn't going to happen, being rebuke him about this, he hears again the echoes of the temptation of Satan saying, you don't have to go to the cross. And so he rebukes him. He says, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because you're not setting your th- mind on the things of God, who has revealed himself to us here, but on the things of man. You're setting your heart on the things that you want, Peter, the things you understand. Peter, your eyes are open, but your vision isn't sharpened enough yet. You need to understand I'm the suffering servant. I must die. I must raise from the dead. And you are a hindrance to me because you're pulling me away from that. Peter is rebuked in a significant way. And so we see that Jesus rebukes Peter. And why does he rebuke Peter? Because Peter is nearsighted. Peter just sees the here and now. He just sees the, the, how things are today. He is unable to see what's across the road. He's able to, unable to see what's far away. And he is rebuked as a result of this. As we continue in this, then Jesus then builds on this. He turns the crowd He turns the crowd after saying, depart from me, or get behind me, Satan. In verse 34, he calls the crowd to himself with the disciples. 
okay, what's Jesus doing? He's given insight, or he's given eyesight, and he wants to give insight. He's given insight about the suffering servant, and now he's going to give us insight about what does it mean to follow Jesus. And he says in verse 34, calling to the crowd, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he says to me, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever will lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. But what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? In this passage, we see that Jesus is shedding light on the cost of discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Um, think about when those of you who are, well, today's Father's Day, so those of you who are dads, remember your kids are toddlers, and some of you may have toddlers, okay? When you say, hey, son, let's go, and maybe you're going to go down the creek, play in the creek, do something like that, all right? And you say to your kid, hey, follow me. Do you trust a toddler to follow you? Like you're taking the eye off of him. Well, dad might, but moms won't, right? Okay, I'm taking the eye off. I'm heading down to the creek. I'm going to play, and trust that that toddler is going to follow you along, right? What's a toddler doing? They're stopping and picking grass, right? They're eating bugs. They're throwing weeds at stuff, and they're looking. I mean, they're looking at the ants. They're doing anything and everything but following dad, right? That's the nature of toddlers. Okay, what happens when we are baby Christians, when we're just born again? We have a tendency just to wander, just to kind of do our own thing. We're just going to figure this out on our own. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you want to follow me, if you're going to be one of my followers, that you have to follow me. And he says, and what it means to follow him is to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What he's saying is, you're going to follow me, you have to go where I'm going. And where is Jesus going? He's going to the cross. He's going to face suffering, rejection, being killed, and being raised again. That's where he's going. Where does he say we have to follow him to? Taking up our cross, clearly, we're going to our death to be suffer, to suffer, to be rejected, possibly killed, and certainly raised again. That's what's in store for those who follow Jesus. And he tells us in this that you must deny yourself, that you deny yourself. Now, what's it mean to deny yourself? How did Jesus deny himself? Great question. Glad you asked. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. If you're using a pew Bible, this is on page 980. Page 980. So how did Jesus deny himself? If we're following him, we want to do what Jesus did. Philippians chapter 2. In this book of Philippians, a book about joy, Paul's laying out to us the path of joy. And he says in verse 5, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, let each of you, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, let's pause there, if I'm not just looking out for what I want, what am I doing with the stuff that I want? Back to Mark, I am denying myself, okay? So, he says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but the interests of others. Another way of saying that is, let each of you deny himself. He says in verse 6, uh, or he says, have the mind that was also in Christ, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself. There's our denial idea again. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What does it mean that Jesus denied himself, that Jesus emptied himself? He denied himself of all the authority and rights and power he had in heaven and all the worship and glory. He set that all aside and he humbled himself. Looking out for our interests, looking out for us, he humbled himself, took on flesh, and he takes on flesh. And how's he going to be treated? He's going to be rejected. He's going to suffer. He's going to be killed. He does all of this. Why? For us. And he empties himself, becoming a man and dying ultimately on the cross. And that's where Jesus went. And he says, if we're going to follow him, we're going to go where he's taken us. And that may mean to our death. So back in Mark chapter 8, he is saying to us, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And we understand now, why would I do this? Okay, well, John chapter 15 says this, okay, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Okay, now, clearly that's talking about Jesus. Greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friend. Jesus lays down his life for us because he considers us friends. If I'm born again, how does my relationship with Jesus change? I become his friend. And what's the greatest way I show love to a friend? By laying down my life. I demonstrate my love for Jesus by denying myself, by emptying myself of my rights and my privileges. I deny myself of those things. And so I deny myself because I'm losing my life for something better. That's what the passage tells us, that whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels, we surrender his, our lives. We say, God, my life's not about me. My life is, not about, is now about the Gospel. If we do that, we will save our souls. But, he says, it says, but what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Because what's going on there? If I'm seeking to gain the whole world, whom I love most? about me, 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 get, 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 accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. Life's all about me. I want to feed my loves. I want to feed my lust. I want to get, get, get. And what is the consequence of that? You can gain the whole world, and it's all yours. But you lose your soul. And you lose your soul not because of the stuff you've accumulated, because of the heart that was pursuing all of those things rather than the heart that is pursuing the love of God. That we would be willing to deny ourselves for the sake of the gospel. If we focus, if you focus on yourself, you will lose your life. If you focus on Christ, you will save your life. That's the very point that he's making. It's one or the other. And as we think about all this stuff that we want to grab, it's as though we live with little crowns on our head and saying, I'm going to be king. I'm going to be king. I'm living for me. And as a result of that, you can be the king. But you will lose your soul and spend eternity separated from a gracious God. Well, verse 38 goes on and confronts us with this, and he says, 
For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. In this passage, is talking to us that says to us, if I'm ashamed of Jesus, here would be the question, why would I be ashamed of Jesus? You think, well, there's nothing to be ashamed of Jesus. I mean, he's, he's God. He's done all this good stuff for us. Why would I be ashamed of him? I would say to you, the reason why we're ashamed of Jesus is because we love us more than we love him. What I mean by that is, we, why do we get ashamed of? Because we don't want to look bad. I'm ashamed of something because I look bad. And I look bad because who am I focused on? Okay, I'm ashamed because who am I focused on? I'm focused on me. Okay, but if I surrender my life and I'm going to follow Jesus, it is not about, about me being ashamed, me whatever. This is not about me anymore. It's all about Jesus. Because I'm denying myself. I've taken up my cross. I'm willing to die. Why is that? Because I've given my life to Jesus. And he says this. Let's look, he says, he describes this world as an adulterous and sinful generation. Okay, here's the application of what this means. We live in an adulterous world. An adulterous world means that, that, well, adultery means you're married to somebody else, but you've forsaken them for another love. The God of this world has made us. We belong to him, but we have forsaken him, and we turn to all kinds of other stuff. We're an adulterous generation. We're a sinful generation. And what does an adulterous and sinful generation want us to be? It wants us to be ashamed of God and the things of God. You think, well, how does that work? Well, we believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient Word of God. Our world would say to us, that's foolish. You should be ashamed of thinking about your, the Bible that way. What are you saying about all the people in the other kinds of religions and all the other things that don't believe that? What are you saying about them? You should be ashamed of yourselves for holding that view of the Bible. Our culture, we, we would say that there is truth, and we can know it. That there's right, wrong, we can know it. Our culture would say, you should be ashamed of holding that idea. That is a shameful idea because there's your truth, your truth, and your truth. And my truth is different than your truth. Who are you to say that there's one truth? And you should be ashamed of holding that view. Our culture would say to, our, our, we would say that there is only one way to the Father. And it's through Jesus. We would read in Mark 14 that says that there's the, that the, the, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. Our world would say you should be ashamed of holding that view because that's narrow-minded and there are multitudes of people who, who either don't hear that, don't believe that, and you're condemning those people. You, are, you should be ashamed of proclaiming that truth. We would believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. We would believe that there are men and women, period. And our culture would say, you should be ashamed of that. Don't you understand that gender is fluid? And by holding a view that there is male and female, that, that that disenfranchises people who feel differently, you should be ashamed of holding that view. We believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. We believe that marriage is God's design for, for flourishing. We say, how dare you Christians believe that? You should be ashamed of that. Marriage should be with anybody who wants to be married. Well, how would you deny two loving people? You should be ashamed of holding that view. The Bible teaches and we believe that sex is only appropriate between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. Our culture would say, 
that's old school, that's naive. You should be ashamed of holding that view in 2019. That's ridiculous. We would say that life is precious. We would say that life is precious and should be valued and protected from the moment of conception to the natural end of life. Our culture would say you should be ashamed of taking away the rights of women by that view. So we, in this culture, we see that we're here, we're hearing, Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me. And our culture is saying there are a multitude of reasons that Bible-believing, Bible-practicing, Bible-following people should be ashamed of themselves for what they hold. And because of, and what's, the, what's the idea? What you should, you should suffer as a result of that. You should be mocked. You should be minimized. You should be, be told that you're stupid. All these things. And so what happens to us? What easily goes on inside of us? I don't, okay, you know what? I'm not really sure we're that serious about all this. I mean, come on, you, you don't really understand it because why? We want to be accepted. We want to be loved. And we say, well, you know what? We, I mean, yeah, those are things the Bible teaches, but, but really, we're not really that hard on it, whatever. And what do we end up being? What's the word? Ashamed. Ashamed of the gospel. Ashamed of the word of God. Ashamed of Jesus. Why? Because we're more worried about what our world says about us and whether we're liked than we do about purposefully, passionately, obediently submitting ourselves to the one who is the Messiah and has died and given himself for us. It's humbling. And as we hear Jesus say this into an a, a adulterous and sinful generation, that was their generation. Our generation's no different. And it was easy for them to capitulate, to want to please the culture. And yet Jesus is saying to them, if you're going to follow me, guess where it's going to lead? It's going to lead to suffering, rejection, possibly being killed, and certainly to rise again. And we need to ask ourselves, do I love Jesus that much? Do I love, do I truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is? I'm who I say that I, I am, that he says that I am a sinner and deserving the wrath of God. But Jesus, in his love, has come to rescue me from my sin and myself and to transform me and make me a new person and give me new loves and change everything about me. And to, He's done all of that, and I love Jesus for that. But I don't want you not to like me. And so we deny him and that denial isn't just as outward denial it's about the love of our heart who am i truly loving and when persecution and when you're getting pushed back and you should be shamed that's when the push is coming about who do you love who are you going to love right now who are you going to love what applause you want this applause or do you want the well done my good and faithful servant Am I willing to capitulate and be ashamed, or am I going to deny myself? I'm going to follow my Messiah right where this took him, even if it would mean my death. I'm going to follow him because I love him because of what he has done for me. And so we see in this that, that Jesus, in the midst of all of this, he gives them all of this light, and then he promises them a little more light by saying in chapter 9, verse 1, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here today who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. Now you're thinking, what's that all about? We have to come next week. But here's the idea, though. Jesus wraps this up by saying, hey, I'm giving you light. I'm giving you truth. I've given you eyesight. I'm giving you insight. I want to give you more and more 
and more so that you will stand firm on the gospel, so that you will be willing to surrender your life for his sake and for the gospel's sake. And I rejoice that we live in a culture that, listen, our culture is pushing us to be ashamed, but we have lots of opportunities. We have lots of opportunities to go and to engage our culture. We have to ask ourselves, what am I going to, when our culture pushes back, am I going to capitulate or am I going to lean into it not with love and argument, but with love and truth. And they're saying, you know, you're right. All those things you say and you think we ought to be ashamed about, can I tell you a bigger story? The bigger story about a God who's created us and wants us to flourish. And these different things that you're saying are, are, are mean and, and hold us back, can I help you to see that those are actually the things that God has given to us so that we would have a brighter day? He wants us to flourish. And he hasn't given those laws. We don't believe those things because they're harmful to people. But that's what gives people freedom and joy. Can I talk to you about that for a little bit? And we turn and we lean in to this, this pushback. And we lean in and we walk into this sinful and adulterous generation. We don't seek to escape and go up to the monastery and just, I just don't want to have to deal with this. No, we love people enough. And we love Jesus enough to go where he went. To a lost people with the gospel, who didn't like it, were willing to kill him, but he did it because he loved. And I pray that would be our heart, that we would love Jesus and love others to the point we would deny ourselves, take up our cross, follow him, be unashamed followers, that we would not be nearsighted as Peter, just seeing today that we would see this big picture, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, that we'd fix our eyes on him, not shrinking back, but keeping our eyes open for more and more light. Well, let's, with that, let us pray. Father, that you have given us eyesight. Lord, that you want to take us from darkness into the light through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I pray today, some here today who are wrestling with this, or maybe some of the things we've talked about have, have pushed a little bit, and maybe they're curious about or just don't understand, or maybe want to argue. I pray that that, that, that they would talk, that we would we'd have opportunities to engage, to help them to know more and more and to understand the big picture of, of the Bible. But God, I pray for those who are followers of Jesus today. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have a sharper and sharper view and understanding of who you are. God, that we would continually turn away from a love of ourselves, to continually turn away from the the desire to have the world applaud us and to like us and to, to, to uh, uh, be pleased with all that we do. God, help us to love, to love you and to love you enough to move into a sinful and adulterous generation that needs the gospel. God, help us. Help us to stand firm, not to, not to, not to stray back, but to move forward in a love for you. God, I pray you'd stir our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.